Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. I love that intro. It's a good one. Never gets boring. It doesn't. <laughs> In no way whatsoever. <laughs> like everything we do, it's not boring at all. Sufficiently silly. Yes, I still want that on a t-shirt and a poster. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. It's good to be here because mm-hmm. we're recording this at not the usual time. It's quite. It's just not the natural order of things. It's not. It's just not right, it does isn't feel it? Feel wrong. You know, civilised people don't record podcasts at this time. Do civilised people record podcasts? Very civilised people. Are we an uncivilised bunch? I think we are the, the very picture of civility oh, God. in the podcasting community. I mean, Everyone else does it naked and scratches the balls, but me and you. Yeah, yeah. Full suit and shirt and tie. Of course. I like that you particularly are wearing the, uh, the cravat. <laughs> Yeah. that you've got rock in there. I think that's great. I thought I was outdoing you in the tails with the top hat, but oh no, no, the cravat wins, I'm afraid. I, I would have brought the monocle out, but... <laughs> but then you'd look like you're advertising Pringles. Yeah, yeah. Is that who he is, the guy with the monocle? Yes, Does he advertise Pringles? Right, okay. Oh, uh, we've got nothing to say. I've been away all week for work. Yeah. So I've not done anything even remotely interesting apart from work. You missed the alien invasion. I that, did. That was a hoot. Yeah, did you repel them? We did. Um, actually, that ties into the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus came back and fought the aliens for us. Did he? Yeah. That was jolly good of him. Might a nice bloke. Actually, a bit smaller than you'd expect. <laughs> I thought you'd be taller, you yeah. said to the Son of God. Uh, what are we doing? All right, so we'll just go straight to emails then. Uh, we've got an email from Luke Giaconetti. Yeah, no, from Luke for a while. I may not make an honest book, but I'm 100% American. I know that from somewhere, but I don't know where. I wouldn't bet it's related to the Rocketeer. It could be. Because that's what his email's about. Missile Man and Rocket Boy. I actually prefer Rocket Boy, Because I'm a Rocket Man. <laughs> Very nice, Mr. Shatner. Uh, hey, guys, wanted to strip you a quick line about coverage of Dave Stevens' Rocketeer comics. I've heard lots of folks talk about the movie, but you were the first podcast I've heard tackle the comics themselves. Really? I can't believe we're the only people that have ever thought to do the Rocketeer. We're actually the first one. That would be fantastic if that's true, and I'm not doubting what Luke is saying, but mm-hmm. it seems it does seem like something that somebody else would have covered at some point. Yeah. Now, to be fair, I never have found it when I've looked or any of the shows I listened to, mm. but I can't think. I can't believe we were the first. If we were, we're going to copyright it, and nobody <laughs> else can cover the Rocketeer ever. <laughs> or if they do, they pay us money. That and we'll, we'll cut some of it for Dave Stevens. We'll split right. it. We're not, you know, we're not about uh, doing undercutting creators. Okay. For as long as we get our cut, right. that's what it's all about. Luke continues, I enjoy pulp adventure stories, especially those set in and around World War II like we have here. I'm a big fan of classic types like The Phantom, The Black Bat and Doc Savage, as well as similar latter-day retro pulp adventures such as Howard Chaikin's The Scorpion and Dominic Fortune. So The Rocketeer seems right up my alley. Now, there's a crossover. The Rocketeer crossing paths with the ghost who walk after the Phantom follows Nazi relic hunters from North Africa to L.A. Luke, 
why, why look, you have so many great ideas why is he not pitching these at the very least if, if you're not a writer Luke and I don't believe that from reading your emails but you should be selling these ideas to some comics companies yeah that's a really I like that idea I think that's really good Dave Stevens' art is also an obvious draw, so even though the story may not be the next Ulysses, this sounds like a must-read for fans of a certain classification, one which I fall into. I'm especially curious about Cliff's New York adventure, given the stealth crossover with the Shadow and Mandrake, as well as the Todd Browning connection, freaks being a favourite of mine from the era. I feel a little tongue-tied here. What more can I say about a book I'm very eager to read, which receives so much glowing discussion from two guys whose opinion I generally value? I'm almost 100% certain that my brother had one version or another of the original Rocketeer story stocked away somewhere. He's a big fan of Betty Page, so naturally getting a copy of the book for Stephen's luscious work on Betty was a strong motivator. Looking at the scans as I write this email, I cannot argue with his motivation. And then the last paragraph, uh, Luke tells us all about Lothar B-movie actor Rondo Hatton, which we covered last week. Because I think it was Chris Franklin, wasn't it? Yes. Who also emailed us in. You know what we need to do? Chris and Luke need to be on a show together. Okay. To see you could out-trivia <laughs> each other. That, I would watch that. Mm-hmm. I'll listen to it, whatever the case may be. So, uh, thanks very much, Luke, for emailing in about that. Oh, he's got a PS. I wanted to add that I agree with Michael's opinion regarding comics companies being bullied into backpedalling actions by extremely loud online individuals. If the actual motivation is, what somebody please think of the children, which it wasn't, well, given the proliferation of online mail order comics outfits, there's no reason why a variant cover can't be made at mail order exclusive or whatever, and only offered to stores who sell it that way. I wanted to express my support of Michael's point of view about this state of affairs. Luke Giaconetti has become my favourite person. <laughs> uh, I like he? people who agree with me. Yeah, well, he's got a point though, hasn't he, really? Yeah. There, is, there is no reason they couldn't have said, all right, we will continue to ship this cover, but you have to order it from your retailer, mm. or whatever. Yeah. And we'll only print a certain amount of covers. But the flip side of that is you don't want the retailer selling it for like $30 instead of 3 Yeah, and even then, will those very loud individuals even be happy then? Probably not. Yeah. Because, you know, whatever. Some people aren't happy, are they? Speaking of Chris Franklin, Mrs. Jones and me. Is his, is his head in? I presume it's a reference to that song. Could be. It's not don't, No Time for Love, Dr. Jones. Any excuse to bring back a musical. Any excuse to, to do a musical. I am the Hugh Jackman of podcasting, except I don't have a beard. Bit of a stubble at the minute. Yeah, yeah. But just a beard. Hello, Leylands. Please don't advocate Kristen Stewart getting any more work. <laughs> What's wrong with Kristen Stewart? Apart from she's a tad bland and... That's, you know Anna Kendrick is more interesting in those movies than Kristen Stewart is? Because I've watched Twilight movies a few times. Right. Because I don't really have much choice, do I? <laughs> I've never read Alias, continues Chris, and really didn't know much about it before this episode. About all I knew of it was the character's name and the infamous Luke Cage sex scene. I do have to say, if this was the only time they had sex, I'm not sure that baby is Luke's. And Bendis needs to go back to 7th grade advanced biology class. <laughs> Well, there was some ambiguity about whether it was from behind or entering well, the back that door. Is, that is something that I thought reading it. Yeah. Well. So, I mean, for all we know, it may not have been the only time that they did it. But given Bendis's propensity for wanting to show us everything, yeah, it's highly unlikely. But maybe, I don't know. Maybe you mixed it up a bit. Maybe it wasn't the only time they did it that night. Yeah. And we only saw that one because if there's any way to say mature comic in your first issue, it's a bit of backdoor action. There is that. Mm, that's what I thought. Apparently Jessica remembered that class because she knew what to do with that picture of Johnny Storm. Or Chris Evans. Or Carlton Banks. 
<laughs> Always great to hear more continuity in nitpicks. Historically, Marvel was more firm in adhering to continuity than DC, especially after the crisis. Most writers seem to work hard to put retcons and flashbacks in that world, actually nestle them into established stories. Well, once the new guard of Roy Thomas and company began to take over anyway, Stan couldn't remember Bruce Banner or Peter Parker's name, and Kirby couldn't remember what scrolls looked like, but you get the drift. The Daredevil bit is the most egregious, but they're all fairly horrible. If nothing else, Bendis should have flipped through a copy of Marvel's before plotting this one out. The series sounds interesting, but not really my bag. Since my bandwidth cap keeps me from getting Netflix, sigh, it'll probably be a while before I can check out any of these new Marvel TV series. Looking forward to your Supergirl coverage, as I just watched the extended trailer for the new Supergirl TV series, and damn, that looks good. Well, I've seen the first episode of Supergirl. All of it. All of it. It, it did fall from the sky right. like a meteorite shower in Smallville and nestled amidst all these green crystals right. that gave me wacky superpowers. There was a copy on a USB stick right. of the new Supergirl pilot. Okay. So I did verily did I watch it with your sister. Right. Thumbs up. Okay. We both liked it. Big thumbs up. I know we shouldn't have watched it and I do apologise for anyone who was offended by that but I've watched it now. So Was it the final one or? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Final okay. one. Full HD man. Right. It didn't have any opening or end credits, right. so nobody got credited. I mean, I assume it's not going to have an opening credit sequence, Yeah. but it, there was no on-screen credits, right, okay. so they weren't on. And uh, there was so no end credits, it just went straight to the Warner Brothers logo. So when's it officially come out? Then? November. All right. So that's quite, a, that's quite a leak, Yeah. if you believe it to be a leak, right, okay. and not Warner Brothers going, well, this worked with The Flash... <laughs> I mean, somebody has pointed out that they wouldn't do that because they're undercutting their advertisers. Yeah. So we'll, we'll just say that, okay, it's a leak. Right. <laughs> uh, email, Michael Bailey's emailed in. I always like it when Mike emails. Superman is not a d- Well, that catches your attention, doesn't it? <laughs> Hey Leylands, greatly enjoyed your coverage of Many Happy Returns. The story was very bittersweet when it came out, because by the final issue, we knew it was going to be the final issue. I've never quite forgiven Dan DiDio for cancelling that book, but I also haven't forgiven him for cancelling Young Justice. Or Countdown. Or the new 52. There's not a lot of forgiving going around, is what I'm trying to say. Anyway, there was a lot to talk about, like me remembering how creeped out I was by the locker room scene and how sad the last issue was, but the main reason I wanted to write in to you is to tell you that the Superman that talked to Supergirl Blue was not the real Superman. That issue of Supergirl was part of a quasi-crossover with Superman The Man of Steel issue 132. In that issue, Mr. Mixier's little gives an actor playing Superman in the parade Superman's powers. Now, in the Man of Steel issue, it's very clear that the actor looks nothing like Superman. I have enclosed a JPEG of the final page of that issue. Apparently, editorial coordination was not top priority that month, so the actor almost looked exactly like Superman in the Supergirl issue, and Peter David does nothing to help with this misunderstanding. Go back and read the scene between Supergirl Blue and the fake Superman again. I see your type all the time. Friends of mine have suffered because of fans who developed unhealthy fixations. This is an actor talking about fellow actors having stalker fans. It completely changes the tone of the scene. Again, it's not clear and the art does nothing to help the reader. I remember this being a thing when the issues came out. Anyway, that's it for this time. Love the show, Steve. Take care. Mikey Mike B, host of Views from the Long Box, Bailey's Batman Podcast, From Crisis to Crisis, Superman Podcast, Tales of the Justice Society of America, Radio KL Live, and Blog... Yes, and blogger extraordinaire on Fortress of Bailitude. So let's have a look at that JPEG. Right, which one is he that doesn't look like? Is he that fat bloke though with the bit of a gut? Is that the one? Right, okay. Well, see, it doesn't really, it didn't really affect the story in any way for us to not know 
that that was a crossover. It did just make it look like Superman, sorry, Peter David couldn't write Superman. Yeah. So now that we have that little interesting bit of nugget, it's nice to know, nugget of information, it's nice to know that Peter David can write Superman. And wasn't writing Superman. And wasn't writing Superman. But yeah, the uh, he, just, he just looked like Dean Cain, didn't he? Yeah. It was, you know, just... Fair enough. Uh, we'll squeeze uh, Tom Panarese's email in because it's very, very short. Hey kids versus the world versus the Archies. Hello Leyland. Hello Tom. I'm taking a break from all my worries. Sure could help a lot. <laughs> I'm taking a break from catching up on a huge backlog of your episodes which have been great to listen to while I pack up my house to move to address something you mentioned in your Scott Pilgrim podcast. The Archies were a band in the late 1960s that didn't take exist because it was made up of the Riverdale gang from the comics and the then popular Saturday morning cartoon show. The song Sugar Sugar was a number one hit in all of 1969. If you're interested in hearing more about the band, I just used the song Sugar Sugar at the beginning of episode 49 of In Country, my podcast that covers the comic book series The Norm. Yes, I went there. Great slew of episodes, can't wait to listen to the rest. Well, we don't mind Tom going in there and plugging his show, do we? Uh, he didn't mention Pop Culture Affidavit, which I'm a big fan of. I like Pop Culture Affidavit a great deal. Uh, we'll knock it on the head, though, for emails. We'll trail us on the show. It's not my decision this week because Michael's editing this one. Yep. So, uh, which we'll always be, makes you happy. Which always makes me happy because it gives me a couple of weeks off. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll be right back after whatever it is Michael chooses to advert. advertise. Hopefully, not a show that's been dead for three years. <laughs> <laughs> I got a bad feeling about this. You'd be feeling a lot better, Han, if you were listening to Dead Boffin Spies, a Star Wars podcast hosted by me, Ryan Daly. That doesn't sound too hard. It's not hard. You just check out Dead Boffin Spies on iTunes, Facebook, or the blog page, deadbothandspies.blogspot.com. Don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. Well, I, I don't know if terror is an appropriate description. It's a podcast that combines everything you love about me talking and some of what you love about Star Wars. I want to learn the ways of the Force and become a Jedi like my father. Fine, whatever. Do that after you listen to Dead Boffin Spies. Yoda. You seek Yoda. No, you seek Dead Bath and Spies, a Star Wars podcast. Check it out. It beats kissing a Wookiee, I would think. Previously on Hey Kids Comics, <laughs> we have covered uh, both Seven Soldiers of Victory and Final Crisis, all of which leads into what we're covering today. Originally announced at MorrisonCon, a one-time event uh, that I didn't get to attend. Uh, <laughs> Let in it go! September 2012, Multiversity would be Grant Morrison's final work for DC Comics, a large-scale crossover similar to Seven Soldiers that would feature multiple individual one-shot comics, each to a different story, each by a different artist, and each one delving into the multiple worlds of the multiverse. It's been a long time since then, and we've waited quite a while, with hints and leaks every once in a while. We thought we were just waiting for Frank Quitley to finish his. After all, apparently... <laughs> oh, very pithy. Yeah. But when Multiversity was actually announced for release last year, we found out that what we were waiting for was much larger than what we were originally anticipating. So, to start off today, we're jumping back a little tiny bit to something that isn't multiverse to. But kind of is. Kind of is. Uh, 
Morrison's last series for DC was Action Comics, which restarted Superman in the New 52 DCU. Uh, and one idea that he had, he was quite fond of, was the Black Superman, which uh, he first used in Final Crisis. The president who was on Yeah, yeah, I remember him. Calvin... Calvin Ellis. Calvin Ellis. Yeah. Um, and this was just a one-shot he did in Action Comics, quite a throwaway issue, which set up seeds for the final of Action Comics, but also set up Multiversity, something we didn't know at the time. Uh, so with Multiversity out and going back and reading it, it was quite interesting to see how it's set up. Yeah, I, I did my usual eye-rolling thing when you said, and we need to read this, and we need to read this, and we need to read that, and I'm just like, why can't I just read Multiversity? But this actually felt like a chapter of Multiversity. Yeah. You don't need to be reading action comics in this era at all to read this issue. In fact, it probably works better as part of Multiversity. Mm. Well, I only threw it in to even out the issues we were doing per show. Yeah, that's fair enough. Um, but yeah, I remember um, when it first came out, it was just a throwaway issue, and the robot Superman would be a villain later on. Mm. Um, but you, yeah, you, when it came out, we had no idea it was anything to do with multiversity. We didn't even know anything about multiversity other than there was a haunted comic. Yeah. Cover's good. It's basically the iconic shirt rip. Who doesn't love a shirt rip? Yeah. Especially when it's done well. This is obviously Calvin Ellis as Superman. I like that he stood in front of Washington, D.C. Uh, his, his S is yellow with a red background, as opposed to red with a yellow background. And it's a job for Superman of Earth-23. That's, there's not really much to say about it. It's an iconic cover, given the twist that this is Calvin Ellis rather than Clark Kent. Yeah. But the principle's the same, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You can't go wrong with a shirt rip. You can't. Unless you're Brian Singer. <laughs> uh, yeah. The cover is by Gene Hart. But who also did the interior art. Alright, because the interior art looks quite different yeah. from the cover, but the cover's... Is the cover painted or coloured differently? Yeah, or? I think he's a digital painter. Oh, right, oh, that probably but explains it. inside he's doing a more traditional... Yeah, it's more traditional uh, yeah. comic book art. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, the Curse of Superman had art by Gene Hart and was coloured by Art Lion. As with everything we're covering today, it was written by Grant Grant Morrison! Morrison. <laughs> Um, <laughs> you were so waiting for that. That was, that was. It's just another day for Superman, foiling the plans of Lex Luthor, but it's Lex's latest creation that causes quite a stir. A giant musical machine ringing with the sounds of a symphony in the distance, growing louder and louder until a woman and two burning men appear from it. The woman attacks Superman for donning the S. Superman isn't harmed by the K-Laser, and the woman turns to the dead Jimmy and the dying Clark. They've just proven there are multiple planet Earths, and multiple Supermans, but none of them could stop him. It was Clark's idea, a tulpa, a solid thought. The three created a machine that would create their thoughts. At first it was small objects, movies, but of course they took it all too far. Next they wanted to create a messiah, a superman. The first attempts lasted 25 minutes, but in that time the creation articulated a simple and good code of ethics. So they took the creation to a business. A business led by the a manipulative imp with it on for Superman, Vindictivix. <laughs> Do you know, it's you reading that aloud that's got, I've got that. Like, I understood that reference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who agrees to fund the project. Instantly, Superman went huge. He became an icon, a brand. Everyone and everything knew it and wanted to be part of it. Clothes, music, restaurants, clubs, even the military. 
What should have stood for good stood for money. The three tried to escape the world into others, but it followed them, killing Superman along the way. Finally it arrives, emerging from the machine. With the skeleton of a Superman in hand, the robotic Superman creation attacks. The two Supermans fight, but how can you fight a, th a pure thought? Superman tries, but is ultimately put down for the count. Lois then tries to fight the Superman of Thought, but her attacks are useless against the machine. It's up to Lex Luthor to save the day, and with the machine damaged, Superman gets up and gives it a good old one-two before realising the only way to fight a thought is to think, and thinks of putting the machine back into the musical box from which it came. With the Superman sent away to another world, the Justice League arrives and the woman tells Superman her name, Lois Lane. Lois? Lois Lane? Very good. I like that because you reminded me of everything that's in it. Uh, one, the music thing, that's Final Crisis, isn't it? Yeah. Superman sings to save the universe. He does. Excellent, good. Hope he's got a good baritone. And secondly, somebody journeying from world to world killing Superman. Yeah. Didn't we just cover this story in Supergirl? Yeah. <laughs> it's the same old plot. It is, it is. Uh, the title, The Curse of Superman is not only a throwback to the Silver Age, because that would totally be the title of a comic in the Silver Age, yeah. it's also a reference to the idea that actors who have portrayed Superman have ended up with a really run of bad luck. Mm. Quite unfortunately. Uh, obviously Christopher Reeve, George Reeves killed himself and or was murdered, depending on your point of view, and Dean Cain has, has ended up hosting Ripley's Believe It or Not, <laughs> which is quite unfortunate for him. Only Brandon Ralph seems to have escaped so far. Yeah, yeah. Because he seems to be doing alright, doesn't he? So, I do yeah. like the line on the opening two pages. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not racist, it's everything else I hate about you. Oh yeah, because Lex Luthor's still Caucasian. Yeah, that yeah, was funny. It was. I do feel like posting that to Josh Trank. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I, I don't care who you cast in the film, I think it's you've made a, <laughs> probably a crap film mm -hmm. so get off your high horse stop saying people are racist because they don't like your work you pretentious hack uh, automatically uh, Morrison's doing that blending of reality and fiction again then because the curse yeah. of Superman has been many a newspaper headline of people you know just raking actors over the coals there's a scene in this issue with Vin Vindictivix. Yeah, yeah. That's a great name. I absolutely love that. Uh, where Clark, Lois and Jimmy, as the creators of Superman, demand brand rights. And the purchasers are depicted as evil, conniving manipulators out to screw with the creators. On the one hand, this is rather simplistic. Yeah. It's rather a simplistic view of the, the creator... Excuse me. The creator rights issue. But on the other, we recently had that whole issue with Jerry Conway and DC Comics. So. Mm. And Alan Brennett yeah. and DC Comics with regards to the Gotham TV show. So, it's uh, it's probably not. What word do they work for? Overcorp? Yeah. Well, the whole Vindictivix thing was he was the main antagonist of the action comic series. Mm. And so, the reason he, he funds this project is ultimately because he uses the Superman robot later on. Right. I like so it's all so basically you could read all of his work in DC comics. Yeah. How does his action comics run fit in with All Star Superman? Um I get that this fits into multiversity. Yeah. But I think All Star is tied into one million. Right. And rather than his overall Morrison yeah, continuity. But Morrison continuity. Yeah. Mori continuity. Yeah. I like well, that. if you think of the DC timeline as more of a tree, yeah. then it kind of works like that, because it's not one... Right, it's a, it's a, a firm trunk, yeah. but lots of different branches yeah. going from that trunk. So even in Morrison's 
little universe, which... He, all... he has a trunk with Morrison leaves on it. Yeah, exactly. L- lots of little bald Scottish men. Yeah. <laughs> talking about magic. Yeah. yeah. And multiversity just ties everything up. Right, alright, fair enough. I like that this guy's president. Yeah. I like the idea of Superman being president. I think that's really quite cool. Uh, for the most part, this was quite enjoyable. Now, you say I didn't like this the first time we read you it. You didn't. But this time, I really quite enjoyed it. Maybe yeah. you've mellowed me. Maybe. Over time. Because you, you did have a bit of a go about the whole, we get it, Superman's a brand, fine, let it go. Well, it's it's not very subtle. No, it's not. And I, I kind of expect more subtlety from Grant Morrison. Yeah. But this isn't... But then again, he's writing DC Comics. So mm. how subtle do you want him to be yeah. for you to actually get what he's talking about? So, yeah. So the creator's rights thing, I got what he was saying. I just felt he could have been a bit more subtle about it yeah. than having the corporate leaders be big connivers. The lit from underneath as well. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, I thought that was a bit heavy-handed, Yeah, to be honest with you. And it, it's another of his stories from his back pocket of about the nature of stories and meta-commentary. Yeah. I mean, the Earth-23 scenario is cool, and this Superman is really good. I like him a lot, and I like the, the whole scenario of him being a president. I'd read this guy. Yeah. This guy seems quite interesting. But I'm, I am starting to think that Mr. Morrison needs to move on from this idea. Mm. And I'm kind of hoping that multiversity is going to be the end of his whole, well, what do stories mean? Yeah. And where do they come from? And how they impact on our lives? Shtick. I mean, it was fun in its own way. It was an entertaining comic in and of itself. When you and it, like you say, it worked much better as part of Multiversity because we see um, a shot of him killing the little Superman, mm. and we'll see that little world later on in the later issue. Mm. And Superman's not in it. That's another because he's been killed. Yeah, it's all interconnected. It is. I like the idea that Superman's a tulpa as well. Isn't is that a is that a thing that's brought to life? It's a, yeah, it's an old occult voodoo thing. Yeah, because if enough people think about it hard enough, it, it comes to life. Haven't they done that in Supernatural? They have, and they have done an episode issue. Sorry, Alan Grant and Andre Fogel did an episode issue of Batman. I keep saying episode yeah. issue of Batman called Tulpa as well. Mm-hmm. So all right, and it probably was in an old Stanley thing. Or was that a Golem? Maybe a Golem. I think it was a Golem. Yeah, yeah in the Hulk comic. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Uh, so next up is Multiversity itself proper. Uh, now, Multiversity, as we said, is several one-shot stories. However, it does have two bookend issues, both by artist Ivan Reese. These were something that were only uh, announced later on. Um, the, what, the bookend? The bookend idea, yeah. So it was originally just going to be a series of one-shots? Yeah. Why? Just, uh, just because um, after Final Crisis, we now have the, the multiverse. Of course. It's back and proper. Well, hasn't Convergence, just to take us on a tangent got rid of Crisis on Infinite Earths. But despite that... But didn't New 52 get rid of Crisis? Yeah, but despite that, the latest um, Justice League arc, the Dark Side War, Mm. and an issue of Multiversity flat out say Crisis on Infinite Earth happened. So maybe Crisis on Infinite Earths happened in one of the multiverses. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Yeah, so after Final Crisis, the Multiverse was back. Uh, So essentially, Multiversity was just a look at the different worlds. Yeah. It was never supposed to be... Yeah, there was an overarching theme, but it was never supposed to be one solid story. It was several. Alright. So these two bookend things are... Yeah. Additions. Yeah. I thought, so far, they've been the best ones. <laughs> anyway, tell us all about Multiversity Issue 1. I will, uh, I'll put my feet up. Okay, look. 
uh, House of Heroes was penciled by Ivan Reese, inked by Joe Prado, and coloured by Neil Ruffino. The cover is of the... Some of the superheroes featured inside the story with Calvin Ellis, Superman, Captain Carrot, we have Murray Marvel, and Abin Sir. The cover was also by Ivan Reese. There were several uh, variants, but uh, we are. Is that um, all you've got to say? Yeah, I've not really looked at the variants. Have you not? I know, oh, I know uh, Grant Morrison did several because he did these little sketches that they used in. Um, Mm. His concept art that they used inside Final Crisis and in this. Yeah. They were the covers. Uh, I like The thing I like about the cover was something that your sister said. So you look at that cover, right, and um, you've got Murray Marvel, who I don't expect that she'd know, and a purple Green Lantern, who I don't expect she would know, and the Superman of Earth 23, yeah. who is not Caucasian. You know what your sister said? What? She looked at that cover and said, Why is Superman with a giant rabbit? <laughs> yeah, okay. Which was a fair question. Yeah. Because she didn't know who Captain Carrot was either. Fair enough. But she didn't question that it was Superman. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> I thought that was quite cool. I like that all the covers feature 52 worlds on the side. Yeah. As numbers and the, the ones, the ones that, that are featured, highlighted. Yeah, the ones that are featured inside the story are highlighted. Yeah, yeah it's good that. Which is Coolio. Coolio. Cool Nick's, and the gang. Yeah. Nick's Oaten is late on his rent, but right now he doesn't care. He ignores a knocking at the door. And dissects Ultra Comics, a cursed comic released as part of the new multiversity crossover. But there's something really weird about it. Time to investigate. Time for Nick Zuoten, Super Judge. With his trusty sidekick, Mr. Stubbs, Nick boards the Ultima Thule and travels to a completely destroyed world littered with the corpses of many. Earth 7. The only survivor they find is Thunderer, standing below the hovering, towering beast. The creature that sent the SOS that Nyx found. A creature of the gentry. Ignoring the pleas of Stubbs and Thunderer, Nick stands before the creature and demands to know why it's here. They want him and all to give up their dreams, to abandon hope and join them. Thunderer's courage and heart have been crushed with the dignity and flesh next unless Nick takes his place. Nick orders Thunderer to, to run the way he came and to board the Ultima Thule. They'll take him to the House of Heroes, where he can recruit heroes from all across the multiverse and then return. With Thunderer gone, Nyx is closed in, with the walls of existence imprisoning him. The creatures of the gentry arrive, Dame Merciless Hellmachine, Lord Broken, Demogorgon, and an Intellectron. Nyx is infected, with no way out of this moment of ruin. He panics, and wakes up in his room. Earth 23. It's just another day for Superman. Or it would be, if the robot he had just defeated hadn't originated from another Earth. Upon arriving at the JLA's orbiting satellite station, he is told by Steel that the broken pieces of the robot are drawn towards Luther's musical machine. The machine starts to become active and lights up, giving off sounds of a distant but loud alarm, an SOS. Suddenly, a flash of light, and then the JLA stand without Superman, and with no knowledge of where he's gone. Superman is greeted by Captain Carrot. They met once, but Superman has no memory of this. Carrot tells him that the transmatter that brought him here is the only way in, but can't send people out. They're inside a space station, the House of Heroes, travelling through the fifth dimension in bleed space, the Orrery of Worlds. In the main hall, they are greeted by a small army of heroes from across the multiverse, led by Thunderer. Superman says there must be an AI system somewhere on board and uses his Brainiac interface to find it. He activates the AI of Harbinger, who is unaware of the death of the monitors and of the menace that grew during her sleep. 
She welcomes the heroes to monitor station Infinity, Valhalla, the House of Heroes, the Multiversity. With the corruption of the orrery underway, a group of heroes board the Ultima Thule led by Superman, and he plays its meta harp to travel across the multiverse. But the ship is attacked by parasites whilst travelling through the bleed, and whilst trying to avoid it, the heroes find themselves on Earth 8, just one world short. Lord Havoc stands triumphant with the Genesis Egg as the heroes face off against the heroes of this world, the Retaliators. Meanwhile, Lord Havoc stands over the dead or dying bodies of the future family, the world's first superhero comic, <laughs> with an unknown power in him so strong that it corrupts him, and, de- and Deadeye lives up to her name in order to stop Havoc's suffering. But it's too late. The egg hatches, and from it emerges a terrible beast, the possessed and infected Nixuotan. Ooh, the bleed! Yeah. Final crisis of seven soldiers. Authority, actually. Warren Ellis's creation. He can't bring in stuff from. When did Warren Ellis write? When did Warren? Oh well, Warren Ellis, the authority. I thought I was confusing him with Grant Morrison. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, when did Grant, Mar- Grant Morrison write the authority? <laughs> Never did, did he? No. But right. when, when DC bought Wildstorm, he brought. Of course, yeah. DC owned Wildstorm now, don't they? Right. Yeah. yeah. I'd completely forgotten about that. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Uh, first off, the art's fantastic. Yeah. I think uh, it's Ivan Rice. So I have absolutely no problems whatsoever with the artwork. I think the art's great. And um, the woman having knits on the first page. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit ick. With super it? knits as well. Yeah. Her knits of knits. I mean, I got a life will find a way vibe from the lines here, similar to, you know, yeah. Jurassic Park and um, Jeff Goldblum. But that seems like a pretty obvious observation. Yeah. As with all Morrison comic books, you can read into the names of people. The bad guys are called the gentry. Yeah. So make of that what you will. And there's musical tones going around mm. as you read through the issue. So music's playing a part in this one, as well as Superman Forever. Yes. Is it Superman Beyond? Yeah, yeah, Superman Beyond. Right. And Final Crisis as a whole. And Final Crisis, yeah. The whole music thing actually isn't like a Morrison creation or anything. He's used it a lot, though. Yeah, he's used it a lot, but... Um, there's there's sounds in space and those frequencies are caused by planets right okay yeah alright fair enough Uh, we're into Morrison's fascination with metatextuality again as the character in the comic is reading the same comic that we are yeah Um, he's also ahead of us as he has a copy of an issue that hasn't come out yet yeah, and he's trying to save us from that issue. Yeah, because apparently it's it's haunted or, or something like that. It is, though. I know he, you've not read it yet, but it is. Right, okay. He makes um, some observation. Sort of, uh, he makes commentary something on his own criticism as well, having Nick Suotan point out that the issue is as weird as you would expect. Yeah. So that's Grant Morrison poking fun at himself, mm-hmm. presumably. I know I risk bringing the wrath of the cult of Morrison down upon my head. But like I just said with Action 23, was it 23? No, it was Action 9, wasn't it? It was yeah. Earth 23. I am getting a little bit tired of this. Well, considering that's what the whole series is about. I know, and ultimately I'm thinking all the people that asked us to cover this may be doing that. Be careful what you wish for, I think. Yeah. Because they may end up not liking some of the things that I say, but you just got to call it as you see it. Mm. I know he was the first one to make a point of doing this. In Animal Man. Made a career of it. Yeah, but it was 25 years ago. Yeah. You know, and I hope he's going to go somewhere different with it by the time I reach the end of the series, which I haven't done yet, because being away from work meant I've had to stop halfway through and just get enough done for the show. I had planned on reading all of it, 
mm. so that I could see where it was going when we were talking about it, but I can't do that. So, uh, um, Nick Autumn himself has undergone quite a change. What, from um, Seven Soldiers? Uh, no, Final Crisis. Right. He's now... They're mixing up in my head data. Yeah. They've, they've essentially just rebranded him as a superhero rather than the the monitor. Right. So he's he's got a big costume change. He's got a superhero. He's, he's sidekick. His sidekick was like a stuffed, uh, like a teddy as well. And he's like Calvin and Hobbes. Yeah. And he's got his um, Rubik's cube. Yes. Which played a big part in Final Crisis and will later on in this. All right. So in issues I've not read yet. Yeah. All right. Okay. There's also the um, the little motif he uses of who's that banging on the door, <laughs> who's the voice in your head, like all these things that break the fourth wall mm. as well as play into the larger narrative of the story right the artwork's great I'm just flicking through the comment I think the artwork's brilliant uh, I kind of think poking your audience with the line is it normal to be reading comics at our age is a tad condescending I get it's supposed to be funny yeah and comics fans are nothing if not self-loathing <laughs> but uh, at the same time I kind of think he's poking the burr a bit there. but I get that throughout this entire series mm. there's an issue we're going to come to in a bit yeah. where I just think he's just poking fun at the people who insist on overanalyzing his work Yeah, that's what I got from the issue but we'll get to that when we get there there seems to be a Captain America analogue dead on the floor of Earth 7 I should have wrote page numbers, but comics don't have page numbers anymore, and it irritates me. But, the thing that bugged me about that, the Marvel characters exist on Earth 8. There are several Marvel analogues. Right, and I, I suppose this, could this be the ultimate version of the Marvel yeah. characters? Yeah. So maybe he's in an ultimate universe? Because it's rather than the Thunderer is Thor. Yeah. Well, there's an awful, especially when we get further on. Yeah. When Marvel comics, what, what are they called? They have a name, don't they? Yeah. We'll get there, because I have written it down somewhere. Uh, The gentry kind of reminded me of OMAC. Fair enough. A little bit. Was that deliberate? I've no idea. Alright, fair enough. The gentry, I think, are really quite creepy. Yeah, yeah, they're a good bad guy. And there's a lot more of them in the the last one. Right, well, I've not got there yet. I've only got to the Shazam issue. I mean, if you liked this one, the art in it... I did? Everything you liked in this one is like ten times better in the last issue. Good, good, good. I'm hoping that it continues in that vein. We're back on Earth 23 with the action comics issue that we just done. I like this version of Superman. I really do. I'm especially fond that he wears the same suit that Clark Kent used to wear pre-crisis. Yeah. The blue suit and the red... The blue suit, sorry, and the red tie. Totally coincidentally, it works as a suit that a president would wear. Mm. But, yeah, so I thought that was quite cool. You're halfway through the book before you get the title and credits. Yeah. Which reminded me of a lot of TV shows now that go on for nine, ten minutes mm. before you get the, the opening credits thing. This is also where we first get Crisis on Infinite Earths happened. Right. They're on the monitor station. Yes. Her, her oh, yeah. was the monitor's assistant. So this is very definitely a, a quasi sequel, well, not a sequel, but it happened in the same universe that Crisis happened. Yeah. Right. You can't, ha- you can't publish stories like this whilst also saying. It never happened. Well, that's what Convergence has just done. Convergence has negated the crisis. But all Didio's done, really, is shake your hand and spit in your face. Well, pretty much, because the whole point of the New 52 was none of that stuff happened. Yeah. So it's like, why do you keep going back? It's not a Ground Zero reboot if you keep doing stuff like this. But Jeff Jones, who actually did the reboot, he was responsible for it, is using Christ on Infinite Earths to work through his stories. Hmm. 
Alright, well, see, Grant Morrison's lucky in that he just tells his stories in his own light. Yeah, and they leave them alone. Morris continuity, doesn't he? So, it works, alright. Captain Carrot's really pretty cool in this book. He is, and it's so funny considering he only started showing up in the bonus pages of the Absolute Final Crisis. Right, so he's not even in the original book. No. Right, okay, that's quite interesting. I like that they've kept the cartoony aspect of the character well. And there is an absolutely beautiful page. Who is that? It's Harbinger. Harbinger. That shot of her face on whatever the hell page this is. Because, you know, it's straight after the double page spread in the centre pages. is absolutely gorgeous. Hmm. Absolutely brilliant. Prior to that, we get a Justice League shot. you got a mini Wonder Woman. Yeah. Who's, a, who's adorable. Ones. And Bloodwind. Yeah. From the Justice League that Dan Jurgens did in the 90s. Who'd have thought we'd see him again? He's in it a bit. Um, uh, is, there's Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing is that there's a female Aquaman. Yeah. Well, Aquawoman, yeah. I presume. Um, there's that other woman from Christ on Infinite Earth as well. Who, in the background? Yeah, the one with yellow and red spots on it. Yeah, I can't remember her name. I'm sure there is a, a website somewhere yeah. that dissects every single panel of this. And you've got your... I hope they enjoyed themselves when they got to Pax Americana. <laughs> there's your, also your ambiguously gay Flash and Green Lantern. Are they ambiguously gay or a are they just gay? A, a, I don't know. <laughs> There is one page where they seem a bit more than brave and the bold. Yeah. Why is Savage Dragon here? Why, a different why would you not have Savage Dragon in it? Alright, fair enough. Why would you not? He's just the Hulk with a fin on his head. Yeah. So why would you not have Savage Dragon? Dino Cop is the name he goes under, which is quite interesting. Isn't that an Axe Cop character? It may very. It sounds like somebody that would be an Axe Cop, <laughs> yeah. doesn't it? Dino Cop. Uh, Morrison is no doubt tying all these together into one cohesive narrative because he's done that before. He's relying heavily, once again, on the flash of two worlds. Yeah. Now, there is a part of me that would very much like to go to a parallel world where that comic never saw print (laughs) to see if Grant Morrison even has a career. Yeah. But also, DC Comics would be very, very different as well because without the flash of two worlds, there's no need for a crisis on different earths. Yeah. So if you remove that one comic you've changed from entire... DC history, yeah. you have en- you've changed their entire publishing line yeah. for, what, 50 years mm-hmm. at this point? And changed a man's career. The new 52 might have never happened. Oh, can we go back and remove Flash of Two Worlds? <laughs> There's also... Um... Would you sacrifice Flash of Two Worlds to get rid of the new 52? No. Right. I, th- I thought the new... I, I'm, uh, I think the new 52 is great. Really? Yeah. All of it? Maybe not Even after it. what they did to John Constantine? Okay, maybe not as a... We need to watch the end of that first season as well. We People do. keep asking us to do another show. Yeah, okay. As a, maybe not little bits, but as a whole, I think the New 52 was great. It, it benefited DC a lot more than just not doing it. It's not lasted, though, is it? You're right, it's not lasted, but... I don't know. When it started... Well, then again, as Roy Batty once said, what does? Yeah. Well, it wasn't Roy Batty, was it? It was Edward James Olmos mm. who said that. Uh, Alright, okay, fair enough. But this issue, as you'd expect, is full of nice little Easter eggs. Yes, uh, you do have to pay attention to the art, don't you? Oh, of course, it's the same with any Morrison comic. Mm. You know what you're getting into when you read his stuff. Yeah. Um, it uh, does help that Ivan Reese's artwork is fantastic. Yeah. I um, love his artwork. On the House of Heroes itself, not only do you have all your analogues, um, the ultimate thrill, which is quite a main thing from the Superman Beyond. Is House of Heroes a, ha- instead of the Hall of Justice? Probably, yeah. yeah. Uh, you also have the carrier from the Authority in uh, the little docking station. It's, right. it's quite, you know, it's it's very definitely. You it's have the. To be, yeah, um, it is right there. All oh, right, so it is underneath the yellow submarine. Not above it, yeah. The Ultima Thule, Nixuart and Superboat. 
Yeah. AKA the yellow submarine that looked like a gun. There's your handle, there's your blaster. There is that. So do you think that'll come into play later or um, I, I just noticed something that Yeah, you probably matter. have. Uh, we also travel through the okay. bleed as well, which yeah. um that panel is just a recreation of one used in Superman Beyond, just with a huge ass parasite in it. Right. Oh, okay. Has he used the same panel or is uh He's not used reached? the same no, panel. No, because that was Doug Manke, wasn't it? Yeah. So it's a different artist. Alright, fair enough. Lots of analogues on Earth eight for Marvel characters. Oh major comics. Mm. I've wrote it down here. That's what they are. I'm especially fond of Dr. David Dibble, a.k.a. the behemoth. Who was a diaper when he, he changes. He was a diaper when he changes, but he changes in exactly the same manner as the Hulk in the TV show. Yeah. His eyes go blue because and then he the behemoth's blue, and then he dip, dip, dips. And I love the Dr. Doom analogue. Yeah, he's, Lord Havoc. He's absolutely fantastic. I like him a lot. Has he not been in anything else? No. Okay. He gets killed off at the end of this. I know, such a shame. I think he's a great villain. I suppose the thing with alternate universes is that you can kill off whoever you want, can't you? Yeah. And this is the version of the Avengers then? Yeah. And the version of the Fantastic Fours around here as and well, isn't it? We saw these actually in Final Crisis. Did we? These have been it before. Right. Maybe we should have done these as just one long series. Yeah. <laughs> or a mini-series off to the side. <laughs> just cover one every week, that would be quite good. Uh, Captain Carrot's cartoon physics leads to the funniest part of the issue where he gets stood on. Yeah. Biggest laugh in the issue, that. <laughs> there'll, there'll, there'll be more. Well, uh, there's yeah. more Captain Carrots, the behemoth stands on him. And he gets flat and then bounces back up. Yeah, because he's a Bugs Bunny Carter. Yeah. So that worked quite well. Again, without wishing to risk the wrath of Morrison's acolytes, I thought, for the most part, the story's just more of the same. There's an awful lot of thought in it. Yeah. And an awful lot of detail. Ivan Rice's artwork is absolutely fantastic. But the commentary on stories within stories, the analogues for other heroes, the whole feel and tone of it felt very superficially familiar to any number of other comics he's done. But, you know, as with everything Morrison, he's critic-proof, isn't he? It doesn't matter what I say, the followers will point to how clever it all is, which it is. I'm not denying that. And the detractors will say it's obsessed with showing how clever it is, Mm. which it is. But it's a solid read. I think it was aided immeasurably by the artwork, and Captain Carrot was great. But again, I'm just. I hope he stops this being an exercise in being clever, and becomes a story in its own right, like Seven Soldiers did. Yeah. Seven Soldiers won me over at some point mm. because he did actually stop being meta commentary and told a, t- a story. And so far, this is just all meta commentary. Yeah. Pretty meta commentary, but still. Next! Uh, next is the Society of Superheroes issue one. I say issue one, they're all essentially They're all issue, issue one. ones, yeah. Um, but Conquerors from the Counterworld was penciled by Chris Sprouse, inked by Carl Story and Walden Wong, and coloured by Dave McCaig. Uh, the cover's brilliant. The it's cover, very pulpy. Yeah, I was just going to say it's very 1950s pulps, isn't it? 1940s mm. pulps. Uh, an army of what look, look like zam- Nazi zombies. They are Nazi zombies. You yeah. can never go wrong with Nazi zombies. What? They're two things that are still perfectly acceptable to hate. Yeah. Nazis and zombies. What I love about Nazi zombies is um, Morrison first used them in his JLA run, which... With Howard Porter? Yep. Right. Which was way before Call of Duty. Yeah, that was 97, 96, 97-ish. Late 90s, wasn't it? Right, okay, fair enough. It is, it's a brilliant cover, very pulp. 
Um, it looks painted as well, which is nice. Yeah, and uh, the title, the way each cover is laid out differently is brilliant yeah. throughout the series. This one is a 1940s pulp magazine, Conquerors from the Counter World, The Fate of Doc Fate, Parallel Planets, so that's brilliant. I, I love the cover to this one. Mm. I, all of the covers are, are good in how they're laid out. Yeah, because they reflect yeah, even the if world. I don't particularly like some of them. The design works good. Yeah. Uh, da-da. Every 100,000 years, Earth-20 and Earth-40 occupy the same space. Doc Savage and Abin Sir were the first to discover this. Savage puts out an SOS, which is answered by Lady Blackhawk and the Blackhawks, the Eternal Man and the Mighty Atom. That spring, they went to war with another world, and the USA fell to Vandal Savage. That was five years ago. Now, all is lost. Savage is winning, and his hordes of zombie soldiers plague the world. Abin Sur is dead, and now Atom is infected by the Ultra Comics. Doc Fate patches him up whilst telling him the story of the Monitors and Nick Suotan's sacrifice, until the brute of the billion-dollar brain breaks into the impregnable citadel of Doc Fate. On his way is Vandal Savage, along with Lady Shiva and Doc Faust. Savage's plane is attacked by the Blackhawks, and Shiva retaliates in her own plane. The ensuing dogfights end in Lady Shiva and Lady Blackhawk crashing into each other. Faust and his Necromen parachute down to the temple and break through the magical defences. Atom kills the Brute with a deadly Atom Punch, and the fight between Doc Savage and Doc Faust ends swiftly. Savage uses his electro-rehabilitation device to find out Earth-40's plans, but they are attacked by Parallax, the fear machine. Outside, Shiva and the Blackhawk continue to fight on the ground, but Shiva is gunned down by the rest of the Blackhawks. Back inside, Savage opens up a portal to another world and tells Atom to go there and to warn them all of the impending invasion, but before he can, the power fails and the machine shuts down. Abin Sir, surviving his previous encounter with Parallax, has beaten Count Sinestro, which has stopped his Parallax creation. Using the skull of the beast, Savage reopens the portal and Abin tells him his masters have confirmed a full-on a full-on invasion of the multiverse. Outside, Vandal Savage stalks his prey. Rock. Like a thief in the night. <laughs> rock in hand. I'm sorry. The immortal man quickly uses his rock to create a weapon. The rocks are what made them what they are. Shards of meteorites that were responsible for their immortality and are the only things that can kill them. Savage attacks, hitting the immortal man in the head, but is stabbed in the process. Savage falls. Having made a group of heroes kill, he believes he has won. As the immortal man stands over the dead body of Vandal Savage, the ground shakes, and towering above him is the stone idol of Nixuotan, now awake after the immortal after immortal blood has been spilled. And standing below the idol, the immortal man sends out an SOS. Sending out an SOS. Um, apparently whenever Morrison has a group of women in his comics, there are always five of them, and they're always modelled on the Spice Girls. Okay. I did not know that. Neither did I. It was on a message board somewhere that I was just reading. Right. And it was every time they put the spice uh, the thingy was in, girls in, the Spice Girls. And he's right. They even have Spice Girls-esque names. Killer, Pixie, Red, Monkey and Princess. Yeah. And now you're thinking, yeah, he does do that, doesn't he? So there's a subtle thing that neither you or I ever picked up. Yeah. That the Spice Girls are always in his comics. I wonder what it is about the Spice Girls that he likes. British. Well, he's Scottish. Well, until we find out his vote, maybe we'll... Uh... I'm sure there has been other 
um, pop groups, British pop groups that he could emulate. You know, I mean, we're all clamouring out for the Bewitched to come back. Of course. Aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> and the lovely Irish cliche that they put into their song. Oh, Bigora. Oh, Jingle Jangle. Oh, Graham Norton. Oh, Peter Guinness. Oh, you two. <laughs> God, they were terrible. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, go and listen to that. They're actually got sprinkled cliches throughout that song. Okay. I just think expect Spinters keep saying leprechaun, leprechaun, but they don't. <laughs> Oddly enough. Uh, Doctor Fate has a copy of Ultra Comics number one in his library. Again, the issue is apparently haunted. Mm-hmm. I haven't read it yet, so maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should stay away from maybe it. Should. Maybe it should just be bagged and boarded and never touched again. Maybe it should be slabbed. Maybe. Yeah. Right, the, the ultimate sin on comics. Yeah. Slabbing them. Yeah. Well, when the mighty atom... Picks. I don't mind people slapping comics, to be honest. It's just a comic, they can get it slapped if they want. I guess. It's up to them. Uh, when the Mighty Atom picks up the comic to flick through it, Fate tells him it is the most dangerous item in the room. Bit silly of him to just leave it lying around, then. Well, he, he, he's never had anyone in his room before, has he? I know, but you, you don't leave the most dangerous item in the universe just lying around, whether you have no one in your house or not. Uh, yeah, I guess. What if you leave, what if you accidentally flick through it just absent-mindedly? <laughs> you just go oh, pick this up for go to the toilet. <laughs> Fries your brain while you sat on the crapper. Yeah, um, I think the entire opening this is is pretty great. Yeah, it is. From the, the beginning up until five years later, it's mm. all really well written. Yeah, uh, it's it's just a bit of a shame that it takes up half the issue so that the conclusion of it is rushed. I wouldn't say rushed, but it's doesn't feel as lengthy as the opening. It's very Challenges of the Unknown Pulp Adventure stuff, yeah. isn't it? And it is, it is, it's, it's very good. I have to confess, because it's me, the line, Abin Sir revealed himself to me last month, made my inner ten-year-old chuckle. <laughs> I did, sorry. I did laugh at that. Likewise, Zombies, I expected something more original made me laugh. Yeah. I thought that was a very good line. And Felix Faust says that he is a pawn of the gentry who were mentioned as the villains last issue. I presume they're going to be the villains when you come back to the wraparounds. There is one, at least one member of the gentry in every single issue. Right. Okay, fair It's just up to you to work out who it is. Who it is and what they're up to. Yeah. Um, Yeah, also, what was quite interesting as well is Earth-20 and Earth-40 are binary planets. They cross Mm. over. Um, And, you know, the most obvious sign of that is 20 and 40. Mm. Um, But also... Doc Faust is Felix Faust. Yes, Felix um, Faust. So you have Doc Faust and Doc Savage. Ah, right. Um, Very good. Yeah, you have Abinster, Sinestro. Yeah. Um, you have Lady Shiva, Lady Blackhawk. Right. Um, also, yeah, the billion dollar brain man mm. and Captain Atom. Not as obvious, but also, as well as the gentry, you have a Captain Atom. Um, of a sort in mm. every issue as well. Yeah. Uh, and Vandal Savage, the Immortal Man, and the Immortal Man. I did like the uh, Raids of the Lost Ark ending. Yeah. Where she steps out. Who is that, Talia? It's Lady Shiva. Lady Shiva steps out. Of course, it's Lady Shiva. Steps out of the water with a sword and says, See my sword, drunk on the blood of alligators. You know how fast I am. I could cut off all your legs before you had time to start screaming. In fact, that's what I'm going to do right bang! And then just shoot her. Yeah. <laughs> That was funny. It was. It was very razor the last arc. I liked that quite a lot. Um, as with all things Grant Morrison, there is more imagination in one panel of this comic than six issues of other people's work. Mm. There is an awful lot going on, an awful lot just thrown at you. 
that you do reread bits of it as you're going along to yeah. get the full to full experience. There's a lot to take in here. And is he ultimately saying with this issue that comics are the ultimate art form? That they are read from universe to universe and the idea contained within it can change the multiverse? Because yes. he seems to be expressing the opinion that comics are the greatest art form that there is. I can't disagree with him. We've spent four and a half years just talking about comics. Yeah, but he's, yeah, he does say things uh, across the series that say mm. that, you know, like every good story, it's different every time you read it. Yeah. You get more out of it, and you can read it whenever order you want. Is yeah. he talking about Watchmen? Uh, or not Watchmen no, specifically, but like Dark Knight Returns? And yeah, stories in general. Yeah. It's a good story if you get something out of it every At different time you ages. Yeah. Right, alright, fair enough. It's a companion piece to the other DC crossovers. This felt more self-contained yeah. and easier to follow. Mm. It didn't feel like it necessarily had to be part of this sprawling epic. Well, now uh, that we're actually into the main event proper, they're all supposed to stand on their own. Right, well, this one did. This yeah. one stood on its own really, really well. He's got the... He's the best writer since Stan Lee for combining different names, different words, sorry, that are other descriptions of what the device actually does. Yeah. Like the combi reanim- reanimator. You know, stuff like that. Only better than that, because mm. he's Grant Morrison and I'm not. This was fun. This was a really fun, pulpy piece of work. Very influenced by Doc Savage, as you pointed out. But then so was Superman. Yeah. So he's, he's just going to the sources that influenced the Man of Steel to tell a different take on it. I did enjoy that one. I really, I really did like that one. I like the Nick Zuotin as well. We are a bit of a sucker for pulps, though, aren't we? We are. So well, his um, sacrifice hmm. is is um, different on different planets. Yeah. On Earth twenty, it's he did something for good. He sacrificed himself for the good of mankind. See, I love how much attention you've paid to this because yeah. the thing with this is we always come at it from two completely different directions. I'm does this work as a comic? Mm. does this work as a story and you're ah but in the grand scheme of the Morrison verse yeah I think with Morrison he's a writer who is a long term story writer yeah how long has he had all this stuff in uh, in mind Final Crisis because he kind of had it planned no but it links together too well to be I did that story and now I'm going to tell another story that somehow manages to link together yeah well he's he planned to do it as a sequel to Final Crisis right so, so what was the delay? Artists. Frank Quitley. Fra- yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even that, though, there are issues we'll get up to that were very last minute. Right. And by last minute, I mean the... So uh, despite there being two years between announcement and release... Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of these are artists who we worked with Action Comics. Yeah. Chris Sprouse are the one for The Just. Yeah. They're all the artists metal on the way, but the, the guidebook, the handbook... The reason why the final artist was different from the solicited artist was that he didn't start working on it until after the solicitations went up. So that's only three months? Yeah. That's a bit lazy of him. Or, or maybe he just works best under pressure. Or, yeah, or maybe it was just internal problems at DC. Or maybe it was just internal problems with Grant Morrison. <laughs> it could be that, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm just expanding my consciousness. I'll get back to writing anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> opens his eyes three months have gone by oh hell I best get writing my comic books <laughs> yeah <laughs> that sounds more plausible than you're willing to admit <laughs> he has said he, he doesn't use drugs I'm sure that he doesn't he watches nature and birds I'm, and I'm sure that he watches birds <laughs> and nature <laughs> he's a big fan of horticulture 
Is he real? <laughs> okay. Uh, Warren Ellis was that when they shared a hotel together, he, he knocked on Grant Morrison's door to ask him for a squat for a pint. The door just opened on its own. <laughs> <laughs> and in the. Must get some oil for the in, door! In the dimly lit, foggy room, he saw Grant hovering in his underwear in the corner. <laughs> Warren Ellis backs away and went to the pub on his own. And Warren Ellis is a tad strange. So when, <laughs> yeah. when Warren Ellis thinks you're strange, there's something going on. Uh, the next issue was The Just, the cover of which is a pastiche of all those trashy supermarket gossip rags that are always at the checkout. The celebrities may differ from earth to earth and country to country, but they all peddle the same filth. For a cover ripping off this kind of magazine, it does it does the job, doesn't it? Mm. You've got Alexis smiling. He gave me the key to the Batcave. Earth me. I like that. I like Earth me. Sasha rebounding. I'm going to party Jackie Thunder right out of my life. Superman, Batman and their pictures ripped in half. Is the world's finest bromance over. Connell, don't call me Superboy, but can he make it in the art world? <laughs> Arrowette, shocker, I'm not daddy's little girl anymore. See her sexy photo shoot for Maximus. <laughs> and I like that it's pink. Yeah. I like pink very much, Lois. Do you like that colour? It works. Yeah, it does, <laughs> it does what it sets out to do, which is pastiche all of those trashy celebrity magazines that aren't worth the paper they're printed on, doesn't yeah. it? And it does it well. Mm-hmm. So, fair enough. Uh, I, I like the, cover, the, the name of it as well. Hashtag Earth Me. Hashtag Earth Me has <laughs> art by Ben Oliver and is co-coloured by Dan Brown. It's co-coloured? So did Ben Oliver did a bit of the colouring? Yeah. Right. Malibu, California. Sister Miracle, a.k.a. Sasha Norman, is telling Megamorpho, a.k.a. Safi Mason, Metropolis about her techno virus in her bloodstream. She doesn't want to ruin her party, so she has the atom currently inside her bloodstream trying to get it out. And she has to think of something sad to help fight it, but there's nothing to be sad about. Safi asks if any superheroes have ever committed suicide before. She'll be the first. The Atom is shocked when every single techno site inside Sasha dies immediately. Gotham City. Batman, aka Damian Wayne, watches an alien race invade the world as his girlfriend Alexis Luthor reads Ultra Comics. Superman's robots deal with the invaders and Damian turns to Alexis. She was right, it was boring after all. They talk about the comic and he inspects it. Apparently whoever reads it becomes cursed. Before things get any more interesting between them than an alien race invading Earth, Superman, aka Chris Kent, arrives. Alexis, the daughter of the man who killed Chris's father, is hiding in the closet under Damien's lead line coat. Damien and Chris talk about trivial things such as dreams, parties, relationships, as well as the suicide of Sapphire Mason. Finally, with something to do in this world, Damien tells Chris to check out Safi's apartment for clues, and so they'll swap notes in a few hours then sends Alexis out via teleporter. She calls Damien to ask if he's coming to her party. Sasha calls Damien to ask if he's coming to her party. If she doesn't get him and Chris, there'll be a mass suicide. The Justice League search Safi's house but don't find any clues. And at the opening of Connell's art gallery, Alexis and the daughter of Harley Quinn, I'm assuming, discuss Connell turning into a bizarro and Sasha's upcoming party. They notice that one of Con-El's paintings is of a woman he saw in his dream, the the Grey Lady, something that a lot of people see in their dreams. 
At the Justice League's recreation of the Red Amazo crisis, something goes wrong with Amazo and it begins to act off script. With Amazo defeated, Steel finds a higher dimensional tab was controlling it but doesn't know anything more. Damien visits Safi's boyfriend, Ernie O'Brien aka Offspring. Damien notices that Ernie doesn't seem affected by the death of his girlfriend and Ernie says he believes she'll come back like they do in the comics. Damien makes Ernie show him his comic collection, as reading comics was the last thing she did, and specifically asked for Ultra Comics. Superman talks to Mentor, a psychic who was brought in to search the consciousness of Safi's body, but all she found was the Grey Lady of the Gentry. Damien and Chris meet up, and Damien tells Chris about the comics, about how these comics are all part of something bigger. The contents are all about heroes trying to reach or save another universe, and each one is published by a different company. The problem? Only one of those companies actually exists. These comics are warnings, bridges from other worlds, but they're infected. Just like Ernie, just like Sapphire, and just like Alexis. At Alexis' apartment, Chris and Damien, accompanied by some of Superman's robots, investigate until one of the robots beats Chris. Alexis has used Sasha's ex, Jakeem Thunder, and his imp from the fifth dimension to control the Red Amazo, and is taking control of all the Superman robots. If she isn't invited to Sasha's party, the party of the century, then she'll crash it, and, as an alternate Earth begins its attack on Earth-16, the Superman robots wreak havocs in the street. Ooh, a lot more happens in this one than you think is going to happen, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, a lot more in this. I got a lot more out of it reading it this time than I did the first time. Yeah, there's an awful lot of them like that. Mm. I'd, I had hoped to read it all and then reread it again, but life didn't let me do that, obviously. Uh, a superhero commits suicide because they're bored, which is a satirical swipe at many a take on teenage angst. Yeah, well, that's what they think it is, really. Yeah. It turns out to be... Turns out to be something else. But yeah, this world is a world where superheroes did their job. Yeah, so there's nothing left for anybody to do. It's basically just... It's just um, a piss take, essentially. It's the real superheroes of... The real super kids of Gotham. The real super... Yeah, it's it's a piss take of this idea that everyone is now just apathetic to everybody. Mm. And everything's done via social media. And this could be a reality TV show kind of thing. Where you're just filming them all the time and you have to keep manufacturing situations Mm. to make it interesting. And there's lots of comments in this issue again for the comics as art debate relating to the cursed issue that has been in every comic so far in this series. But we've not to get there. So these are all taking place in our future then. Because that comic's not come out for us as we're, if you're reading this as it came out. Mm. Um, I like that it's Wayne Towers they're at with Damien oh yeah and I like Grant Morrison's writing Damien again because he tuts like he did in uh, as a kid does he yeah yeah. I like I actually quite liked Damien in this even though Batman's rather boring yeah in that way that reality TV people are really boring yeah I, I like that they all wear costumes just around yeah and Alexis is bald and was purple and green even though they've got nothing to do yeah because they've done the job far too well uh, Batman here is Damien Wayne, as as uh, Michael's mentioned his synopsis, isn't that interested in Alexi Luther? So is this a commentary on Batman is gay? Uh, that whole Batman is gay thing from the 50s with Wortham? Dad, or did you not get that? I don't think Are we overanalyzing this comic, do you it, think? It could be. I like the, the scene where they're in bed as well, where Damien goes a bit crazy. Yeah. 
He does go a bit mad, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, there's a subsection of Morrison fans that are con- going to come down on me for daring to criticise the godlike one himself. But this issue, put into words by Batman himself, nobody cares about anything anymore. I actually thought that, that subtext stuff was a bit played out by page 10. Yeah. I kind of thought we were going a bit far with the the uh, the apathy planet. I guess, yeah. The apathy uh, reality. But it's, it's supposed to be a look at all the different universes. So. It is. So, you know, alright, fair enough. I did appreciate the, his commentary on comics having pretentious names given to them by people who are too cool to be reading comics. Mm. Alexis calls them Pictofix. And I love Batman saying, what's wrong with calling them comic books? Yeah. That was, he was speaking for us there. Batman is more or less us. He's our way of seeing the rest of this world. Damien Wayne. Yeah. Yeah, he's very, he's very no-nonsense in this one. Mm. And he basically just, he doesn't, he cuts through the bullshit doesn't he? He doesn't yeah. want to talk in pseudo-teen speak and be cool. He's just interested in being who he is. There's a bit of a commentary as well about um, girlfriends in refrigerators being the start of yeah. current DC. And uh, I also think, I, mean, I could be wrong, but was your favourite line of this issue, when did hipsters get into comic books? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Quite pointed though, given a lot of Morrison's fans. Yeah, true. Let's be honest. A lot of them are hipsters. Uh, more on the nose dialogue, they found a postmodern way to make superheroes interesting. Mm. That'll never happen. That was more Batman. Yeah. More, more pearls of wisdom from Damian Wayne. Uh, I failed to see how adding Alexis Luthor in a lead coat makes her invisible to Superman. Yeah. I was like, how, how world's greatest detective, <laughs> that gene dot, get passed on, did it? Superman sees lead. Yeah. It attracts his attention. You can't see through it, but he can still hear stuff like heartbeats. Yeah. And smell perspiration. <laughs> it's not going to work, Damien. Unless he was like, I know this isn't going to work, I'm just humouring her. Yeah, yeah. Which also works. Uh, Chris Kent, Superman here, was from the Richard Donner Last Sun arc, which was eight issues that shipped over, oh, it felt like three years. <laughs> has, Chris, has he ever used Chris Kent before? Uh, I don't know. Morrison not used him before? I, I didn't know. remember him using him. But that just could be, I just don't remember him using it. Uh, Superman and Batman have an entire conversation about Superman teaming up with Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Yeah. When he says, I met Sandman, and the, then Damien says, Neil Gaiman's Sandman? Mm. So in this reality, Sandman is a comic book written by Neil Gaiman. Yeah. Pretty much the same as our reality, mm. in, in many ways. There's a bit of a commentary as well about how no one's ever dead in comics. Hmm. Yeah, well, he's, he's done that a few times as well, Yeah, hasn't he? Uh, Superman mentions that Alexis' dad killed his dad. All-Star Superman? With I, everything I, I, in I the Morrissey-verse is connected? I think it's more just how Lex Luthor and Superman was always a constant battle. Right, so it doesn't matter that it's, it's All-Star Superman or not. It's yeah. just a reference to Superman and Lex Luthor. All right, fair enough. He's also reading the Legion of Superheroes. In this yeah, issue. The Society. Which, the Society of Superheroes, yes, not the Legion. Which we just read. Mm-hmm. So. Ernie O'Brien and Kyle Rayner discuss comics to film. O'Brien is Megamorpho. Yeah. Kyle is Green Lantern. And they basically discuss the Marvel Universe versus the Ultimate Marvel Universe. Mm. Don't they? They have a conversation about that. It's pretty funny because largely it's nothing but piss takery. Yeah. Which I quite I found was funny, and that's pretty much sums up this issue. It's more funny, yeah, than actually engaging. The big thing that happens is Alexis is annoyed that she didn't get invited to a party, to a party so yeah. she kills everyone. It felt a little bit like reheated Bendis 
because it's basically just a bunch of fo- fanboy conversations. Some of them are funny, and the dialogue's witty. Yeah. But it's felt more like he's he's not mocking, but he's he's pulling a Bendis. Yeah. In many ways, only with a lot more subtext than Bendis normally manages, mm. because that's what Grant Morrison does. And there's a lot of 90s characters in this comic. Yeah. So if that's your bag, it's probably uh, a good reason to read it, if you're into the 90s ones. Main story finally kicks in at the end, when Batman has to explain the plot yeah. to this incredibly dumb version of Superman. Isn't he? He's not bright. He's the typical reality TV star who... Bec- he's Nick Lackey, okay. or um, Joey Essex. He's the one that yeah. becomes big because he's reasonably pretty but oh so dumb isn't he <laughs> can you imagine Joey Essex Superman yeah but uh, what, what's, what's oh god doing? can you imagine trying to explain any physics to Joey Essex like uh, cripes in it do you remember when in the last time when we did many happy returns and Supergirl's trying to push the earth out of orbit yeah. and Supergirl goes no that's a bit silly yeah. Joey Essex would believe that because he's a bit stupid. But this version of Superboy, Superman, Chris Kent, whatever, he would be the breakout star. Yeah. Because he's just so thick. I think the whole thing with the main event happening at the end, though, is what's the best way to reflect a world where nothing happens? Have a big alien invasion. You don't have anything happening. Yeah. And I guess, as a single issue, it kind of doesn't work. Unless you're willing to accept the slight pretentiousness of it that's what I thought about this one it's a one joke issue and the one joke was stretched too thin there is some satire to be mined from an earth where the superheroes just did their job far too well and there's no more worlds to conquer and he does do a good job of of playing up the ennui and apathy of the teenagers and of course that's all satirical swipes at teen culture on our own earth digs at social media and reality television but I, I can't stress this enough, nothing happened. Yeah, I think it is like quite a, a good little story, only if you have the time and patience for it. Mm. If you're not a fan of Morrison, don't read it. No. And it's... I mean, that I found this comic really quite boring mm. could be an extremely calculated move on Grant Morrison's yeah. part. He could be very, very much imitating Bendis, who mm. a lot of the times I find quite boring. But to create a narrative that comments on the teenagers of society being in a permanent state of apathy, and that bleeds over to the reader who is bored of reading this comic yeah. book, if that was his, his intention, then bravo, he succeeded admirably. Yeah, one of those where you can't tell if he's doing a good job of it. Yeah, or just he, not. He, he's managed to create a wonderful metatextual narrative where I was as bored as the protagonist <laughs> in the story. Yeah. Fair play! <laughs> but I can't think that that was his point. It, <laughs> I don't know, I'd, I'll defend it and say it could have been with what... But this is your least favourite issue, isn't it? No. Oh, is it not? No. Is the one worse than this? There is definitely one worse than this. Oh, I'm looking forward to getting to that then, because I didn't even like the art in this one. Um, no, I, I like the art. When he did that one issue of Action Comics, I thought it was crap. Mm. But seeing him do this kind of thing, because even though they're all superheroes in costumes, it's a very real person thing. Yeah. All right. So I think it worked quite nicely. All right, fair enough. Final issue for today. Yep. We said the best of last this week. Did we really? What did you call this? The single greatest comic book ever? No, I didn't. Right. I called it the single best comic I've read this year. Oh, right. and, it, and it was only March. <laughs> and it's probably not going to get any better. <laughs> um, what is the cover? I originally thought it was the DC Comics logo. 
Yeah. And that's what I originally thought it was. And it does look like that, because I studied it for a while, going, what the hell's going on? It's but it's only when you turn the page, yeah. you realise that the cover is the first page of the story. Yes. Which is a neat gag. And I always quite like it when they do stuff like that. It also looks like an eight on its side, which yeah. is the symbol for infinity, which the dead president also has on his yeah, ring, and the number eight... eight plays into this and subsequent stories quite a lot. We all know it's not a number eight, though. No, it's not a number eight. Uh, yeah, it's it's the peace sign. Um, oh, so it is, so it is. Because he has peace on his flag, and it's burning, just as we'll get to in the... As we get into the issue. Uh, yeah. Time is the school in which we learn, time is the fire in which we burn, by Delmore Schwartz, is quoted on the cover. This was, like, the big issue we were all looking forward to. This and Ultra Comics yeah. were the big ones that were signposted from the get-go. Yeah, this is the one that I was not looking forward to getting to. Why? Because of what everyone said? Yeah, it's it. just been so overhyped at this point, and so many people have called it the greatest comic book that has ever come out. And Well, when I told you to read it as soon as it came out, you might have been better off doing that. Maybe I would have done. Maybe maybe I should have done, yeah. But anyway, go on. Tell, um, us, tell us what happened. Yeah. Essentially, In Which We Burned has art by Frank Quitley and colours by Nathan Furburn. In the 1970s, America's first superhero yellow jacket went missing, never to be seen again. Did he beat his wife? <laughs> no, he didn't work for the BBC. Oh! Yellow Jacket, aka Vince Harley, was shot by his frightened son whilst climbing through the window in his study. For years, Harley would visit his father's grave until a strange man, Captain Adam Allen, visited him and showed him the world in a new light. That was when Harley first solved Algorithm 8. Harley went into politics, becoming a senator. His father was a comic book creator, something that inspired Harley in a post-9-11 world and saw an obvious solution to a politically bleak world. Give it the heroes it needs. At first, he created Peacemaker, also known as Christopher Smith. Chris had ideals, to solve crime without collateral, to save every life, including those who threatened to take it away. These are ideals he showed when Peacemaker made his dramatic debut, saving President George Bush from a terrorist attack on the White House. Next was Adam Allen, who, after a freak accident with an unstable Neo Element U2235, was left with quantum senses. Allen can see in every direction, forwards, backwards, and he can even see you. Hurley gives him comics and a new name, Captain Atom. In 2008, the world saw its heroes for the first time. The Justice League of America, consisting of Tiger, Nightshade, Blue Beetle, The Question and Peacemaker, as well as Captain Atom, who, at Senator Hurley's presidential rally, created three towering structures where two fell. With the help of the Justice League, as president, Hurley will create world peace. The following years weren't as hopeful as some would have hoped. The heroes stopped standing for what they should have stood for, with some standing for their own ideals. Blue Beetle became selfish, fighting for the money he earns from being the Beetle. Nightshade struggles with her superhero act whilst being the daughter of the previous Nightshade, now a sad and lonely old woman, ignored by her husband and Nightshade's father, Charles Eden, a cynical old man who stands beside the right hand of Harley. Captain Atom, having had scientists create a black hole inside his head, was sent away to another universe inside a particle accelerator, which was immediately followed by the death of the scientists at the hands of the enigmatic Sergeant Steel. Their deaths and the disappearance of Captain Atom was covered up. The question went rogue and started to fight against his father teammates in a desire to uncover the truth. As for Peacemaker, Senator Hurley had a plan. 
He knew he would become president. Algorithm 8 and Captain Atom told him so, which meant he needed a way to create the world peace that he desired. Peacemaker would assassinate the newly elected president. The act would send America into a descent into chaos, confusion and fear. With the help of Captain Atom, Harley would be recreated, a miracle which will create the peace he envisioned. Peacemaker's partner, Nora O'Rourke, was a genius, and after Chris left to carry out his duty, she finally cracked Algorithm 8. That night, she was silenced by Sergeant Steele. The following day, the newly elected President Harley was shot, assassinated by former superhero Peacemaker. Peacemaker was arrested, and under the rule of newly elected President Eden, the time of heroes will end, and everything Harley sacrificed and worked for went up in flames. There we go. Good synopsis. This story is actually quite straightforward. straightforward yeah. yeah, it's how it's told mm. that makes it a little bit more confusing. Um, we've already mentioned I was not looking forward to this. One of the most overhyped comics in recent times. And I think I was actually actively not looking forward yeah. to it. I mean, because especially seeing as, as I've been reading it, I've not been wowed by this. Yeah. I've not hated it, but I've not been amazed by it either. But every single review of this so far has been effusive with praise. So what if I didn't like this one? The Morrison Brigade would really be coming after yeah. with the pitchforks and torches, wouldn't they? First off, and this is going to shock long-time listeners, Frank Quitley's art is absolutely fantastic in this. Mm. It's really, really good. The eight-panel grids, see what he did there, yeah. are very effective, especially when he has the action be one large panel that is cut into multiple actions as the character moves through the panels. Yeah. I love them a lot. I think they're really, really clever. It's supposed to, um, it's, it's supposed to re- retell Watchmen. Oh, is that what they said? Because what Watchmen was, was what if superheroes were political tools, but in the 1980s? Mm. Whereas this is what if superheroes were used as political tools in a post-9-11 America. Right. So, he was using... That, and what he also did was, whether this is an insult or whatever, he used the original Charlton characters. Yes, which, which Alan was, Moore couldn't do. Yeah. Right, okay, see, I didn't get that at all, but I've not read Watchmen enough to be able to go, ah, oh, that's paralleling mm. Watchmen. And the the nine-panel, not the, uh, the eight-panel grids mm. are supposed to be similar to... Um, to Watchmen? Yeah, the yeah. Like that. That's what Dave Gibbons did. Dave did, Gibbons, he do, yeah. did he do eight-panel pages or nine-panel pages? I think it was nine, yeah. Right, okay. But what they're also supposed to be as well, as this ties back to earlier issues in Final Crisis, supposed to be beats... Each panel is its own musical beat, so you're reading the story to a larger musical piece. Right. It flows very well. Um, I do like the, the tying in the dialogue with the art. He says, take an elevated view as they walk up some stairs. Yeah. And we've turned a corner as they turn a corner. Yeah. So all of that's really clever. As we've pointed out, the number eight appears with regularity. The vice president states he's scheduled to speak to the president's assassin in eight minutes. The Blue Beetle's bug and mask are drawn to look like there is an eight there. The question asks about algorithm eight. The book has eight panel grids. There's an awful lot of eights going on. Because the eight is infinity. Yeah. And the thing with the story is it's it's told generally backwards. But it it jumps around a bit, but it is told backwards. Hmm. Um, well, there's that there's that great page in the middle that's jumping between between three different time zones. Yeah, but it's one large image. Yeah, and each page has sixteen panels on it. Mm. 
So, because uh, that was a good page, I was quite impressed with that. Uh, the meta stuff relates back to Animal Man again with the question asking who controls the board. And as we turn the page, it looks like a chessboard. Yeah. Which I thought was clever. The, the, the opening scene in this, because mm. what I was saying about it being backwards, it's more obvious in the opening scene, but I think the opening scene is, is great. It's uh, Frank Whitley's the only artist who could have done something well, like this. Well, the president this. getting shot. Because this is where the flowing of the story is at its most obvious. Yeah. A little bit of Steranko influence yeah. in some of it, I yeah. think, which is um, no bad thing. Um, uh, my favourite bit was that bit, the, the jumping yeah. between three different time frames. The question investigates Nora's death in the same room that we see Nora die yeah. and the planning of the execution. Mm. So it's all in the same room. So each panel essentially is just one big grid of the room that you're looking at as he's investigating, they're talking, and then she's killed. Yeah. And I, I thought that was really good. And here's that word again, clever. Yeah. So that was impressive. Captain Atom reads Ultra Comics number one. Is he, so he's supposed to be thingier then, isn't he? He's the guy with these knocks out. Yeah, um, um, Doctor Man. Doctor Man, that's all right. He was uh, yeah. originally in uh, Batman, not uh, Superman Beyond. Right. Because he is the Superman of this world. So that suddenly does make a little bit more Watchmen sense. Yeah. Is this Morrison poking Alan Moore? I don't think that, because up until... Um, what was it he was supposed to be doing? Captain, until Grant Morrison was supposed to do Mr. Miracle, mm. uh, and Alan Moore said, no, stay away from it, rather mm. politely. Grant Morrison was always a huge fan of Moore, and Watchmen in particular. So yeah. I think this was trying to do justice to it but in a contemporary setting alright fair enough yeah so it does make more sense now that I think about it the big blue man yeah well if, <laughs> if he's not smacking you over the face with it <laughs> and I'm like okay I didn't get it so maybe it's not that bad mm. alright fair enough um, I do like his commentary on comics that a comic is non-linear you yeah. can flip back and flip forward and read it in linear fashion or you can flip to the end and flip back to the beginning that was good yeah which is this yeah well, which I, is this story I wrote the synopsis chronologically because it makes more sense which meant doing it from back to front yeah but yeah so again meta commentary yeah okay um there is also a lot there's most obvious yeah there's all two heads there's also a lot in this that seems to be Morrison commenting on people dissecting his work yeah for every ounce of meaning and uh, there's a reference to OSI as well. Is that a reference to the Six Million Dollar Man? Could be. Because that's who built the Six Million Dollar Man. Yeah. We also get uh, doves. The doves so, in this is imagery used quite often. Yeah, normally uh, in uh, John Woo films. Yeah, but in this, the doves represent Chris and Nora. Right. So we see them, when they're talking, we see them get shot down. Right. That's what ultimately happens to them. They mm. get shot down. Um, and they're even at the end in cages. They're in cages, and when they actually feel like they're free to get shot down right okay um on first blush it was pretty hard to comprehend what the hell this was about but as with a lot of Morrison's work it was actually a pretty simple story constructed in a way to make it appear more confusing than it actually was because you know would Pulp Fiction be as effective if it was told in linear style mm. so there is something in the way the the writer is telling the story that plays into whether you enjoy the story and Michael's point out we have a, a book here that's a riposte to Watchmen. Um, whether it's a homage or a criticism, whatever you think about it, it's 
I ultimately didn't feel anything. Mm. It's a good comic book. It may be a great comic book, but there's a ton of beard stroking analysis from Morrison acolytes in this book yeah. to keep them busy for years. Those four panels, though. Yeah. Look at the clock. Yeah. If you overlap them all, you get a piece on. Do you? Yeah. So you can take those out. So see what I mean? There's over analysis for this that you could do forever. And while I was gathering my thoughts on this, I did look if there were any reviews that were anything less than glowing in their praise, just to see, is it just me? Yeah. And I found a review on PopMatters.com, the author of which was Gregory L. Reese, PhD, who summed up what I thought of this brilliantly. So I'm just going to steal his words. He said, it's brilliant. And in that brilliance, it's maddening. It is frustrating. It is broken and fractured to pieces. It is unlovable. Maybe I'm just not smart enough for this, end quote. And I, I kind of agree with what he wrote. That's what I felt about it. And I don't want you to get me wrong, Morris and Acolyte. It is a really good comic. It's a, it's a very good comic. The art was great. The story was intriguing. But I was completely unmoved. I could appreciate its cleverness and its brilliance, but I didn't enjoy it. It's too clinical. It's demanding that you overanalyze it whilst condemning you for doing that. And certainly enough people loved this to make me think that it's least partially me. As Mr. Reese states, it is, it's him, not the work. And I agree with him. Maybe it's me and not the work. So everybody else loves it. Everyone yeah. else thinks this is utterly fantastic. But I'd rather read a story where the Incredible Hulk loses Jurella. I'd rather be gobsmacked by Daredevil, um, their Bless the Beast and Children, which is a heartbreaking story. I'd rather be saddened and moved by the loss of George Stacy. I'd rather feel something than be left marvelling at how clever the writer is. And that's ultimately what I thought this was. It's just an opportunity for Morrison to show how clever he is. I think ultimately that was its downfall. I think it's a really great story mm. and really well constructed and absolutely clever. I do think that Morrison and Quilly are its... Um, They're the Lee and Kirby of your exactly, comic yeah. reading experience. Um, but despite that, because like I said, it's ridiculously simple. It's just told in quite a complicated way. And I think because of the fan base it's had that has been its downfall. Hmm. You have people going, oh, it's brilliant, oh, it's, it's so clever, it's all that, and they're hyping it up to make it sound like something so ridiculously complicated and... But at its heart. Great. That, to something that it's not. Yes, it's complicated at first glance. Yes, it's told in a clever way. There is so there is an awful lot in there, but it does boil down to such a simple story if you take the time to read it. Mm. And essentially the story is about a man who kills his father and can't cope with that. So he tries to enforce his peace. What Pax Americana is, is it's based on Pax Romana. When the Romans invaded the, uh, invaded the world they invaded and ruled it, and they created peace. Because the only way to create peace is... Through force. Exactly. Peace isn't a natural order. <laughs> Because it's, it's really not. So not for humanity. Not for humanity. So the way to do it is to enforce it. The Pax Americana is Pax Romana. So the way to create peace is to enforce it. And that's what he's doing. He has pure intentions. But because of the death of his father, the first American superhero, he's created these fake idols to rule America. But then you have Eden, who is of the gentry in this, who ruins that. The world is still the way it is. Hmm. 
because it's the real world. We ha- that world Hitler is our world now, but with these fake idols trying to rule it, and ultimately it won't work. So everything that this man has worked for gets burned. I like listening to you talk about it more than I like <laughs> reading the issue. Yeah. I sometimes think you're smarter than this book. <laughs> it's just about a man who loses at every turn. Right. See, that's. I think, like I say, it may it may not be the book. Yeah. It may be everything that surrounds the book. It may be people saying this was utterly magnificent, and then me approaching it and going, "Is it really though?" Mm. And I know it is another one of those things where I feel like it's just me. So I was glad I found Doctor Reese. Yeah. Who was also somebody who said that yes, it's brilliant. It's a magnificent achievement, but it just didn't do anything for me. Mm. And that's ultimately where I stood with it. So. Anyway, that was that was good. That so next time. Oh, <laughs> didn't mean to do that with it. Next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics, we'll wrap up Multiversity. Yep, won't we? Hope you'll join us. Hope you enjoyed that. Hope if you're a Morrison fan, I've not upset you too much. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. Between a crucifix and the Hollywood sign, we decided to get hurt. Now there's a few. Our hearts ablaze And every city was a gift And every skyline Was like a kiss upon the lips And I was making you a wish In every skyline How big How blue How beautiful How big How blue How
Hits Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. Join in the fun. We have a website where you can see the covers of the comics we've covered at www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Hey Kids Comics